Saving faith isn't something that we just sign on the dotted line for. Saving faith produces great sorrow over our sinful and dead state. Some people never come to true salvation because there is no true sorrow in their heart over sin. When you come to God in your brokenness and humility, He will lift you up. He will remove the stain of your sin and set you free of your shame because He is your salvation. Yesterday I introduced the most important and fundamental message of the entire Bible, the Gospel. And in looking more closely at the message of salvation, I noted a few things. Just to recap, first, we looked at Jesus' jaw-dropping statement in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, regarding people who claim to believe, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Second, I noted the dangers of preaching a gospel message that is watered down and formulaic because of its potential to lead someone into a false hope of salvation. And thirdly, I pointed out that, the, that Christians should never dilute the message of the gospel in an effort to persuade or convince someone to believe. That the gospel message should never be adapted or altered to make it more palatable for people because it is the work of God and God alone that draws people to believe. In other words, we are to present the gospel, no matter how countercultural or taboo it may seem. As Paul states in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel message that is, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Anything short of this has the potential danger of leading many, astray, many astray, leaving them in their sin and apart from God. We must simply declare the gospel truth as witnesses and leave the transformative work of salvation to God. I concluded by saying, now that we know it isn't up to us to convince or compel people to believe because salvation is God's work alone, we need to know what the message of the gospel is so we can get busy about sharing it. Now, if you were to ask Christians today to give you a summary of the gospel, you would get many answers like these. Accept Jesus into your heart. Make a decision for Christ. Enter into a relationship with Jesus. Surprisingly, all of which are not based on biblical terminology. Let me be clear. My hope is not to discourage you from doing the work of sharing the gospel, but rather to fortify your message so by the words of truth and the power of God, true transformation can take place. I myself have been guilty on many occasions of not presenting the full gospel, which is why it is with so much conviction that I share this with you. I've seen how effective the truth is in setting me free and my rigid commitment to this truth is motivated by the desire to see others truly set free. For just another form of religion only keeps people in their sin, and we serve a God that washes away all of our sins, past, present, and future, through the sacrifice of His Son. Now, as we go through this main text of James chapter 4, verses 7-10, through 10, it is of utmost importance to keep two key points in balance. First, Scripture teaches that salvation is the sovereign work of God, and He has total discretion over those whom He chooses before the foundations of the earth. 
Romans 9, 15 through 16, speaking of God and in his work of salvation, it says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who gives mercy. So cement this pillar in your mind, because if you stray from this foundational understanding, you can very quickly make salvation an act of works or merit and not of grace. There is so much more to be said about this first point, but for the sake of staying on message, I'll move on. The second key point to keep in balance is that while salvation is God's sovereign work, the Bible also, paradoxically, teaches that we must respond and are responsible for our response to the message of salvation. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so we see in these verses that while God is sovereign in salvation, he also presents us with the decision to choose life or death. It is not our place to reconcile this tension, but rather to teach both of these truths because it's what the Bible teaches. The understanding of how these two points fit in God's eternal plan, only he knows. But this concept is not foreign to us. If I were to ask you, who wrote the book of Romans, Paul or the Holy Spirit? Or who lives your Christian life? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see the reality of this paradox all over Scripture. Salvation is by God's sovereign grace and grace alone, but we must answer the call. And God is faithful that when we respond to this call of salvation, He does the work in our hearts, which results in true repentance and regeneration. So let's look together at our main text in James chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here we have ten commands written in the imperative and one of the clearest invitations to salvation. Let's take them one by one together. And as we do this, 
Please note that these are in no chronological order, but rather these are all components or characteristics of saving faith and true repentance. First James says, Submit therefore to God. The word submit in the Greek is the word hupotasso, and it means to align yourself under the authority of God, to come under God's authority. It's a word used often to speak of troops lining up under the direction of their general. It's a willing, conscious submission to God's authority as a sovereign ruler of everything. It speaks also of our readiness to do whatever he commands us to do. This is the complete opposite of our original state of being under Satan and sin's authority and rule. Second, James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's the flip side. Resist the devil, or literally, take your stand against the devil and he will flee from you. You see, you are either under the lordship of Satan or under the lordship of God. There is no middle ground. The world is deceived in believing that they are free, but they are under Satan's dominion and control. Ephesians 2.2, in which you want, it says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so to resist the devil or to take your stand against the devil means to oppose everything that he stands for. And so salvation is a submission and an allegiance to God and an active stance against the devil and his ways. It is a rejection of our former master and a submission to our new master, Jesus Christ. Notice he says here, resist the devil and he will flee. Satan departs when we come under our new Lord. And while he may try to mess with us, he has been overcome and cannot control us any longer. Look at the third point. In verse 8, James says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's saying when a person comes to God, it isn't just confessing him as Lord and submitting to him. It isn't just exchanging the old master for the new master. It is the longing of the heart to worship God. It is drawing near that longs for an intimate, loving relationship with God, coming into fellowship with him as a true worshiper. And so true salvation is not just something you get, but it is a living and active communion with God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying, run to me. There is grace and mercy to anyone that draws near to God. Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. James is saying that true salvation produces in our hearts a desire for intimacy and a relationship with God. In fact, this is a good checkpoint for us to look at our desires. Do you desire to worship him? Do you desire to seek him? God puts in those who believe the desire to seek him. Notice it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is so faithful that whoever seeks him will find him. What an amazing promise. As Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And listen, 
and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so the gospel is submitting to his lordship, standing against the devil, and drawing near to God. Fourth, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse in the Greek is a word katharizo, catharsis in English, which means a purging, a purifying, a cleansing. He says, cleanse your hands. Why hands? Because hands represent your actions or your behavior. With our hearts submitted to God, taking a stand against our former master, drawing near to God in intimate fellowship causes our desires to change in that we hate our sin and long for righteousness. I want to point out clearly that God in his work of salvation in our hearts produces a repentant heart. James's whole point is to show us what true saving faith is, and that true saving faith is not by works, but rather produces actions as its result. You see the balance here of what I mentioned earlier, that true saving faith is the work of God and God alone, but it yields the fruit of righteousness in the lives of those who believe. Repentance is not a human work, but the inevitable result of God's work on the human heart. A great theologian and pastor John MacArthur puts it this way, We must remember above all that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Biblically, it is defined by what it produces, not by what one does to get it. He goes on to say, As a part of his saving work, God will produce repentance, faith, sanctification, yieldedness, obedience, and ultimately glorification. Since he is not dependent on human effort in producing those elements, an experience that lacks any of them cannot be the saving work of God. Let's look at James's fifth point. He says in verse 8, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. First he says, Cleanse your hands of your actions and your behaviors. And now he turns it inward and says, Purify your hearts. This means your thoughts, your motives, your desires. The sinner just doesn't come to God and clean up to clean up his acts, but he comes to God to be cleansed from within. Catch this. Faith that only deals with our outer works is religion, but faith that cleanses us from the inside is true faith. This is exactly the issue that Jesus took with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 27. He says, "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. James is making the the point that God's work in our hearts produces the longing for righteousness and purity. Look next at verse 9. And the sixth command James gives us, he says, be miserable. This means there is a deep sense of shame over our sin before a holy God. He says you must feel bad before you can feel good. James is not denying the unspeakable joy of God, but he's saying it doesn't start that way. For to be lost, blind, and dead in our transgressions could never produce his joy. And so when someone comes to God in faith, the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, which produces misery. This is the gospel. 
Some people never come to true salvation because there is no true sorrow in their heart over sin. And this is the danger of summing up salvation in words like, invite Jesus into your heart without telling people about the components of repentance. Next, number seven, he says in verse nine, mourn. This is a broken spirit over one's sin. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, verse four, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Saving faith isn't something that we just sign on the dotted line for. Saving faith produces great sorrow over our sinful and dead state. In fact, the word mourn is used often to speak of lamenting over one's death. James is showing us the broken heart of repentance to God. He goes on to say, number eight in verse nine, weep. Misery is the acknowledgement of our sinful state, mourning, how the spirit responds, and weeping is how the body responds. After Peter denied Jesus three times in Mark 14, 72, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. I love that. A repentance without regret. You may be saying, wow, this is a depressing message. How could we possibly expect people to respond to this? And that's the amazing part of it. The work of God in salvation is so powerful that the repentance is without regret. Those who lose their life for him find their life in him. And when you are born again, you realize that your old life was nothing but death and sin, but your new life is freedom from the bondage of sin to serve him. Let's keep reading. Number nine in James chapter four, verse nine, he goes on to say, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Laughter is a word that indicates the leisurely laughter of men indulging in their desires and pleasures. It is the laughter of the fools that reject God. It is the laughter of those who have no regard for God and laugh in his face. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like the publican in Luke chapter 18, a perfect example of the contrast that James is showing us here. Luke 18, starting in verse 10, Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so James makes the point that an evidence for true faith is one who is deeply sorrowful over their sin and cries out to God in repentance. Finally, the 10th command James gives us in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 
This is really a summary of the entire passage in one statement. True faith does not produce arrogant and self-righteous behavior. Instead, we stand in the presence of a holy God and feel great sorrow and misery and weeping over our sin because we are unacceptable in the state that we are in. Looking to ourselves for salvation will always produce misery. But look at the end of verse 10 at this precious promise. Humble yourselves in the, in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. When you come to God in your brokenness and in humility, he will lift you up. He will remove the stain of your sin and set you free of your shame because he is your salvation. And so the gospel message is first, submit yourself to God. Two, take your stand against the devil and he'll flee from you. Three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Four, cleanse your hands. Five, purify your hearts. Six, be miserable. Seven, mourn. Eight, weep. Nine, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. And ten, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You may be saying, how can I possibly share this? And the simple answer is, because this is the gospel that the Bible outlines. And before you go out with a list of 10 commandments of salvation and make it about works, understand that James is making the point that when one hears the gospel and responds, that these 10 characteristics will be evident and are not a checklist in chronological order. The point is, repent and believe. And true repentance, which is the sovereign work of God in our hearts, produces submission to God, turning away from our old master, a desire for a relationship with God, having deep sorrow over our sin, changing our behavior inside and out, and humbling ourselves before God. And the result of this true repentance is he will lift us up.